Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio and our sponsors, the Hewlett Foundation and the Capsonol Foundation. I'm Louis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. This year is ending with a flourish of education news, the naming of Miguel Cardona as the next Secretary of Education. That followed on the heels of Congress passing a $900 billion COVID relief package with $80 billion going for education. 54 billion of which will go to K-12 schools. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about, Lewis, but we also wanted to end a rather depressing and difficult year on an upbeat note with an appreciation of the essential workers of the classroom, that's teachers. So later in the show, we'll speak with educator and advocate for teachers, Ken Futernick, about a new project that enables students and parents to publicly commend teachers who have made a difference in their lives. We'll also speak with one of the teachers Futernick featured in a recent podcast, Thomas Courtney. So, Lewis, is Miguel Cardona a good choice? I guess we'll find out over the next few years, but right now he's a bit of an unknown quantity. On the face of it, he seems like a good choice. And, you know, what a huge contrast to Betsy DeVos, at least in terms of their background. Cardona is a Puerto Rican background, born in Meriden, Connecticut, Grew up in a very poor household uh, compared to DeVos, who, uh, as you know, is a multi-billionaire. Yeah, relatively inexperienced. It's sort of like plucking him from a relatively small town or city in Connecticut. Well, he is commissioner of education in Connecticut, but just two years ago, he was assistant superintendent in Meriden, the town where he grew up. So really quite an astronomical rise. And maybe that's one of the reasons he was chosen, because, you know, didn't have a lot of opposition and, I guess, some support. Yeah, he also has gotten good reviews as commissioner in Connecticut. And one of the things that Biden may have liked is that he's been committed to bring back students in Connecticut to classrooms during this pandemic. John, just on a more personal note or parochial note, I should say, I'm still a little disappointed that Linda Darling-Hammond, who really was the leading candidate by all accounts for this position, chose to take herself out of the running. She is currently still heading up the education transition team for President-elect Biden. And what we've heard, she's working day and night to make this transition. But I have to say, I think the country's loss is California's gain. And it may well be that uh, Linda felt that she could have, in fact, more impact in California on education policy in the state. I absolutely agree with you. And this will be a critical year to have somebody strong as head of the State Board of Education. Well, John, let's move on to what actually happened this week, which is that Congress finally approved an emergency relief fund and a bunch of money for education. Yeah, well, let's say this. Congress didn't have to wait until the week before Christmas to deliver its presents for schools, colleges, and child care. Democrats and Republicans have been haggling over a second relief package since they passed the first one in March. To talk about federal funding and what it means for California schools, we're pleased to have with us Leilani Aguinaldo. She is Director of Government Relations for School Services of California, which many of you know is a prominent school consulting group. Welcome, Leilani. Thank you, Lewis, and thank you, John, for inviting us to be a part of today. Governor Newsom this week talked about the funding that California will be getting. He said that the state would be getting $8.5 billion plus or minus for education. That includes K-12, preschool, higher ed. How much of that would be coming to K-12 schools? We're 
estimating that of that amount, about $6.8 billion will be coming to California's local educational agencies that covers, you know, our school districts or charter schools, et cetera, that serve K-12. That sounds like quite a big chunk of change. How generous is that, do you think? That's a significant amount of money. So that is the share that we're projecting California will receive from the elementary and secondary school emergency relief funds. So for comparison purposes, in the CARES Act that we received earlier this year, the total national share was about $13.2 billion. So this is four times more. So the earlier share, California got about $1.65 billion. So this is a significantly larger share for the school districts in California that will be able to get some funding from this pot. But the governor did allocate several billion more dollars from another part of money for schools, right? And that we won't be getting that this time around? That's correct. So in the enacted state budget, the governor allocated $5.3 billion total for the Learning Loss Mitigation Fund. Of that, $4.4 billion of it. So the biggest share of that came from the CARES Act through the Coronavirus Relief Fund. And that is a completely different allocation of money that is not part of the latest relief fund that Congress approved this week. So this is a completely different share of money that we have to look forward to. So it's about the same, really. If you look at the roughly seven we get now and the seven plus we got then, it's sort of about the same money then that we got in the spring. Similar, but the distribution will be very different. So for the $6.8 billion, for example, that we're expecting this time around for the elementary and secondary school emergency relief fund, that is money that is going almost exclusively to districts that receive a share of Title I funds. So if you're a district that doesn't get very much Title I money from the feds, then unfortunately your share of this $6.8 billion is actually going to be pretty small. So that's going to be one of the things that will be a little frustrating, I think, for different districts around the state is some districts will definitely get a lot more than others. And just to clarify, Title I funds are allocated based on how many low-income kids you have. Is that correct? That's correct. And so definitely those are very vulnerable students that need a, a large share of resources to help, especially at this time because of different needs that they have during this pandemic. But arguably, all districts also need support, right, because all districts are working towards reopening and have similar challenges for infrastructure needs, for example. Soon to be President Biden is saying he'd like schools to reopen within 100 days. And will this be enough to make that possible in California? It will certainly be a big help, but I think a lot of districts would argue that more assistance could definitely be used, particularly those districts that aren't able to receive a big share of the elementary and secondary school emergency relief fund. So there continue to be a lot of great needs for reopening. There's a lot of conversation, for example, about testing. And while this latest COVID relief package does set aside a good chunk of money for testing, it's not certain how that money exactly will be distributed and how much of that will be set aside for schools. So that remains a big expense. So that's money besides the $6.8 billion. There could be substantial money for testing. So that's the governor's discretion, and that's going to be one of the discussions between the governor and the legislature over the next month or so. And who gets the money for testing? I would assume so, that that would be a big part of the conversation. And we still have to read through a lot of the details that are in the federal relief package to see how that money is going out to the different states as well, and to see how they prioritize the different categories of workers that'll be eligible for it. So a lot there to stay tuned for. A lot of advocacy groups 
both in California and nationally, have been pushing the federal government to come up with a lot of money for schools. This is this is a fair chunk of change, but I don't think it comes close to what some of the figures I saw, which was around $200 billion for schools nationally. What are the prospects, do you think, for additional funds later on, once we have a President Biden in office? I think certainly there will continue to be pressure for additional federal resources. And particularly, like we said, where, you know, there will be districts that won't receive as much or any funding from the elementary and secondary school emergency relief funds. So certainly we anticipate that there will continue to be pressure for additional federal relief to help all districts around the state and around the country. Leilani Aguinaldo, Director of Government Relations for School Services of California. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you, John. Well, John, that was a lot of talk about numbers, but ultimately everything comes down to teachers and what happens in the classroom, whether remotely or in person. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, Lewis, because that's what we're going to turn to next. Teachers. They've had a difficult time this year, as have many of their students and their families. One person who is worried about the impact that this year will have on teachers and on the future of the teaching profession is Ken Futenik. He is a professor emeritus of education at Cal State Sacramento. He was director of the Center for Teacher Quality, also was a past director of the School Turnaround Center at West Ed. California born and educated, and uh, most importantly, in terms of why we have him on the podcast, is the founder and host of a new website called Teacher Stories. Welcome, Ken. Hi, uh, nice to be here. So, Ken, tell us about Teacher Stories. It's a website that you said serves as a counter narrative that celebrates teachers who have elevated people's lives and strengthened communities and inspired a passion for their subjects. So why did you start it and why is it needed? I started TeacherStories.org, which is a podcast and is a collection of videos. And it was really prompted by a concern I had a few years ago when it became apparent to me that California's teacher shortage was now due in large part to a shortage of new people entering the profession. There was over a period of about five or six years, a 50% drop in the number of people applying for teacher credential programs in the state. And it just seemed tragic to me that, that so few people would be wanting to enter such an important profession. And one of the reasons I think that there was that drop when we would interview people and talk to undergraduates on our campuses in the CSU was that for several decades now, there's been this negative narrative about the profession and about teaching and when you asked about going into teaching as a career possibility, people said, I just don't hear good things about being a teacher. So Teacher Stories is really about reminding people that virtually all of us have a story we can tell about a teacher that made a difference in our life. And I wanted to just remind people and collect stories to remind people of the extraordinary impact so many teachers have on our lives. One of the things that's happened in the last few years, I think since we left No Child Left Behind and certainly during the pandemic, there seems to be now a greater appreciation for teachers. That seems to be one of the positive things that's come out of the pandemic. Do you agree with that? I do. I, I think it's one of the silver linings of the pandemic. And many of the teachers I've interviewed recently about their teacher stories, that they've talked about letters they've gotten from parents and students. In some ways, it's brought 
parents and teachers closer together because teachers now, perhaps more than before, are not taking their teachers for granted. I think teachers are feeling appreciated, but they also uh, are really feeling the challenge of teaching now more than ever. It's it's really difficult to have pivoted so quickly from in-class instruction to virtual instruction. And, you know, so there are many kids in homes that aren't very conducive to learning. They have houses full of people and there's it's noisy and distracting. And so it's really difficult. But I think parents and students do appreciate what teachers are, are doing for them. So, Ken, is the assumption that aspiring teachers will turn to the site and read the appreciations and listen to the interviews with excellent teachers and say, oh, that could be me. And gee, parents really might appreciate the work that I'll do. I I certainly hope so. That's one of the reasons for publishing these stories. I created a program for the California State University system, and I I just retired from that position in May, but it was called Educor. And the idea was to recruit people into the profession. And one of the things that we did was to share stories and, and have them interact with people that are actually teaching. But I did actually start teacher stories while I was doing that. And we would share these stories with the EDUCOR members throughout the state, some six, 700 of them, to do precisely what you just said, John. And I think it was making a difference. A lot of them that saw an opportunity to become a teacher would hear these stories, and I assume it made some difference for them. What are the teachers that you interview for your podcast, what do they have in common? I, I did an interview with a writer named Alfie Cohn. You may be familiar with him, and some of your listeners may know. He was a prolific education writer. And I interviewed him about what he saw as the, the key characteristics of great teachers. And I said, the thing that I see in common with the teachers that I've interviewed is that they all care deeply about their students. And he said, well, that's true. But he said, I would add one thing to that. He said, I think great teachers care unconditionally about their students, whether they're high performing students or low performing students, whether they're behavior problems or not, they care about them regardless of their performance and their behavior. Talking with Ken Fudenik, who'd been involved with teacher recruitment for many years. Ken, I, I just wanted to ask you about the current crisis that we're in. And there is a bit of a subtext that, I mean, most teachers are teaching kids via distance learning. A lot of parents are eager to get the kids back in school. There's a subtext that somehow teachers don't care enough about the kids to get back in the classroom, that Somehow they prefer teaching via distance learning. Do you sense that? Well, the short answer is no. I, I don't see that at all. I Some of my relatives are teachers, and they talk about the challenges and the frustrations of trying to accomplish what they do in the classroom virtually. No one that I have spoken to in any of my podcast episodes or the people that I know that are teaching now have ever said that they prefer to do this. It's quite the opposite. They really miss being able to see kids in front of them. And they worry that there are many kids they're simply not reaching. I mean, some kids just simply can't join the classroom every day or they don't stay on the Zoom call long enough for anything meaningful to happen. So if there was some way to dispel that myth, I would do everything I could to try to do that. Teachers want to get back in the classroom, but many of the teachers where I live have gone back into the classroom. There's the hybrid models going on right now as we speak. And in some of the local schools, a good number of teachers have tested positive for COVID and have to leave the school for 
weeks at a time. So uh, it's really challenging. Well, Ken, tell us about the Teacher Appreciation Project. That's something that's also available on the website. What is it and how can people get involved and what's the purpose? This simply allows people to go to our website, click on enter a new appreciation, and they can thank a teacher. And many people have done it. Some write long essays and others is just a sentence or two of gratitude. It seems to me that it would be nice to have a way anytime during the year that a parent or a student or an administrator or a community member wanted to express appreciation to a teacher, they could do that. And then as soon as we publish the appreciation, a copy of that appreciation goes to the teacher if the person submitted their email address and most have. So those teachers then hear about this public appreciation, and many have reported to us that how much it means to them to hear from a parent or from a student that their work matters. So if a school or a district wanted to set up its own teacher appreciation page, is that possible? We're actually working on a new webpage for schools and districts and sign up. That will be up and running in a few weeks. And they just let us know who they are, and then we provide them with email messages and other strategies for getting the word out to parents and students, which is what we piloted in the Monterey area with a couple of schools. And I was thrilled to find that within about three weeks, we got over 100 appreciations from parents and students after they sent our emails out to people requesting that they share a word of gratitude. Well, Ken, we have two commenters who have We've asked to read their appreciations to us. Let's listen to them now. My name is Gretchen Van Egan, and I'm a parent of students at Spreckles Elementary School near Monterey, California. My twin girls started first grade this fall during the pandemic and the wildfires. To say I was a bit nervous was an understatement. However, Mrs. DeBellis is one of our family's biggest blessings this year. How she cares for and loves each of her students while teaching them to read, write, and do math is absolutely amazing. Every single day she takes her time with each student and she treats them with more patience and kindness than most could ever give. Thank you, Mrs. DeBellis, so much for all that you do. You are definitely a hero. Hi, my name is Karina Figueroa Ramirez and here is my teacher appreciation. Andrea Ekas Dunbar, you were my seventh and eighth grade English teacher You were also my Spanish choir and music teacher. Because of you, I did well academically in high school. You were the one who spoke to me and acknowledged and valued and appreciated my essence. You taught me to believe in myself, to set goals and pursue them. Thank you for all you did. I love you very much. Well, thank you very much. We've been speaking with Ken Furenik. He is founder and co-host of a new website, Teacher Stories. Thanks for joining us today, Ken. You're welcome. One of the teachers that Ken has interviewed for Teacher Stories is Thomas Courtney. He teaches fifth grade at Choyas Mead Elementary School in San Diego Unified. He also happens to be a member of EdSource's new 15-member teacher advisory committee. Glad to have Thomas with us today. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for having me. One of the things you talk about, Thomas, is that importance of connections with your families, obviously before COVID, but it must be really difficult to keep in touch with them now. How do you do that? Yeah, it's difficult. So I am plugged in to about eight different machines on a daily basis. We text, we reach out via a program called Class Dojo. That's helpful. I can get a blast out to parents a lot of different ways. Some parents, it's very difficult to get in touch with them, even by email or some other way. And so one of the things that we've learned to do is we've mapped out a route 
to reach most of the students within about two hours at school. And when it comes to that, we, we leave notes on doorsteps. So Thomas, you're an upbeat person. How do you maintain that positive energy that you can pass on to your students and your parents? Thank you. It's very nice of you to say, and I try to be more upbeat than downbeat. I would say the number one reason is because I've been at the school for so long that I know the families. Many of them, I've had their brothers, older sisters. There are a couple of cases where I call and I actually speak to one of the children that used to be in my classroom 20 years ago about the child who is turning in work or not turning in work. And to have those interactions be so personal and to feel really like a family really changes things for me. Those connections are, are essential to me and my outlook. Talking with Thomas Courtney, who teaches fifth grade at Choice Mead Elementary School in San Diego. Thomas, I want to just ask you about, you know, we focus so much on connecting with kids during this pandemic. What about connecting with other teachers? One of the things we've come to recognize is teachers working collaboratively. Peer support has been so key to actually keeping teachers motivated. I really do miss being around other teachers. I teach predominantly from on campus. So normally I'm in the classroom, even though I'm in the virtual environment. I don't like to say this too much, but I do skateboard around the campus a little bit and pick flowers out of the garden. And I think there's one tomato left and I'm not telling anybody about that. But but just being on campus physically has really helped me kind of remind myself that people are there. Feeling appreciated. It seems like teachers, if you were sitting around waiting to be appreciated, you probably wouldn't be in the profession. Do you feel appreciated? <laughs> How important is that? I feel very appreciated. In fact, right now, I think I feel more appreciated than ever. Whether I read something and people seem to understand our point of view and how much we miss the kids and how much we want to be back in the classroom and honestly, how difficult it is to do virtual instruction. It's not just the planning and it's not just the the time spent reaching out to families and doing all those things, but also it's learning all these brand new things and trying our best to create lessons that engage students in a completely different way. My parents have certainly gone above and beyond showing me that they appreciate it. And it's also part of the reason why I I wake up and smile. Do you think that perhaps unexpectedly that you feel more appreciated during this pandemic, that many more people are realizing what teachers do and how important they are? I think that everyone is in a sort of a state of flux right now. And I think that we're all sort of getting through. And what I hope happens, and I keep having this, I keep having this moment in my mind, whether I'm dreaming or I'm awake. And all the students are sitting there on the rug with me and all of my family members are around. Uh, and we're all kind of celebrating the fact that kids are back in the room. And I know when that moment happens that I'm going to feel appreciated. The kids are going to feel appreciated. And my parents are going to feel appreciated. And I think that's the moment we're all waiting for. And it's going to be a great one. Lewis, let's let Thomas have the final word and hope that his moment happens soon. For us, it's been quite a year, too. It's been fun working with you on the podcast. And we've had to learn new technologies. And we're doing our podcast remotely. And it's been a learning curve for us, too. John, I have to say, I think none of us could have predicted that we would end the year in the very difficult situation that California finds itself in and schools as well. Prospects of getting kids back in school looking, you know, more remote than ever and California in a tremendous crisis. 
But John, I have enjoyed doing the podcast with you. For those of you listening, enjoyed sharing these thoughts with you. And we look forward to a better 2021. But before we go, I wanted to make a last pitch for those of you listening to go to our website at edsource.org. And if you're so inclined to make a donation to us for our annual Newsmatch campaign, we really rely on contributions from those of you who appreciate what we're doing. Just go to our website and look for the red heart at the top right hand corner. That's our donation button and super easy to contribute. In fact, if you donate this week, you won't have to make a New Year's resolution to donate again. (laughs) Okay. And on that note, that wraps it up, not only for this week's podcast, but for the rest of the year. Our producer is Kobe MacDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Stay well. We'll be back next year. Mm -hmm.